After leaving England for Australia in the late 1830s, John Fairfax began building a media empire. At its height, John Fairfax Limited held the Australian equivalent of the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal, and grew to include everything from magazines to radio and TV stations. Warwick Fairfax, the founder's great-great-grandson, grew up with the expectation that he would someday run the company and carry on the family tradition. He felt duty-bound, built his life around that destination, attending Oxford, working on Wall Street, and then getting his MBA. But in 1987, as Warwick was finishing up at HBS, his father passed away, and it threw things into flux. At that point, the family owned about 50% of the company, and the rest was publicly held. Fueled by his own critical opinions about the company's management and wary of a corporate takeover, the 26-year-old Warwick launched a successful takeover bid that was worth about $1.5 billion in U.S. dollars. Just three years after Warwick's takeover, the 150-year-old company declared bankruptcy. The dynasty was over. In this episode of Skydeck, Warwick and I talk about how he lost his family's company, how he overcame that loss, and how he's working to help others get through these same sorts of deep, personal challenges and come out stronger on the other side. Tell me about the company's situation when you arrive at HBS in 1985. Where did the company stand and what challenges was it facing? Back in the 80s, newspaper companies were still doing pretty well. It was before the internet, so uh, the bulk of newspaper revenues come from classifieds, uh, some from display, a little bit from uh, uh, subscriptions. So it was doing well, but there'd been friction within the family, as there often is in family businesses over the last few decades. Kind of in the towards the end of my time at HBS, my dad died in January 87, and the stock price started rocketing up, which meant the market felt the company was in play, that somehow but with my dad dying, others might take it over. And the other thing from my perspective was I felt the company wasn't really being uh, as well run as it could be. I think it could have been more profitable. So here am I, like 26th at the time of my last year at Harvard Business School, with all these ideas that the company could be taken over and it's not being well run and in a lot of youthful naivety and uh, enthusiasm. In those first few months of 87, after my dad died, I'd study for my cases that night, go to class, but then in the evening, I'd be talking to advisors and investment bankers about potentially doing my own takeover. So it was a, a little bit of a weird existence those last few months at HBS. By the time I graduated in May, June, we already had the outlines of a takeover plan and amazingly we were able to get financing we launched in late august 87 a 2.25 billion dollar you know australian dollar takeover which in u.s dollars probably was somewhere north of 1.5 billion so you know a lot of money one of the biggest takeovers in australian corporate history i was organizing all of that and leading up to the takeover i was yeah studying at hbs Walk me through the takeover. Take me from 87 to essentially 1990, that process, and how that plays out. One of the assumptions I made was, you know, I wanted to change management and increase profitability and that the family would somehow stay in, which was an incredibly uh, naive and dumb assumption. They didn't, so that meant from day one at the takeover, we had a lot more debt than we anticipated. Then there was the October 87 stock market crash, which really hurt our asset sale program in Australia. So by the end of 87, we had 
in Australian dollars, about a billion five in debt. So we did increase operating profits. I brought in a new chief executive that increased operating profits by 80%. But it didn't matter because the interest was so big that at a bottom line level, no matter what he did, uh, it was never enough. By the time we got to late 1990, Australia got in a big recession. Newspaper revenues, which was the heart of the company, is very much tied to the economy. And so with the amount of debt we had, we had no margin. So we had to file for bankruptcy in late 1990. My hope was to preserve the company and family control. And what I ended up doing was leading to the exact opposite of it and ending family control. Warwick, how did you know it was over? Do you remember that moment when you knew you had to declare bankruptcy? See, it was at the point where, from a legal perspective, there really wasn't any, any option. So intellectually I understood it, but it, yeah, it was just a horrific thought that, you know, what have I done? You know, why mm. did I do the takeover? I mean, uh, yes, we increased operating profits. So I suppose my hypothesis that it wasn't being as managed as optimally as possible was proved correct. But so what? We lost control. And, uh, you know, what does that do for all of the journalists and thousands of people that work there? And uh, all of the family history, so it was um, it was a very devastating moment. Warwick, talk about the period just after that. Was it a period of reflection that you had? Was it a period of wilderness? What did that look like for you in the years just after? Yeah, I mean, that's a very appropriate phrase, uh, wilderness. Uh, it was. Uh, my wife's American, so we moved to the U.S., and early 91. It was devastating. It was my whole life was spent being groomed to run this family media company. And now that was over. So, you know, what do you do now? I mean, try getting a job with a resume saying, you know, failed media mogul. Mm. It's like impossible. Right. I felt like I'd let down my father. I'd let down my family. I'd made some stupid mistakes. Probably one of the worst things other than letting down my family is uh, the company is founded by a person of faith. Faith is very important to me. So I felt like, you know, I let down John Fairfax in some strange way. I felt like I even let God down. Like, I thought he must have wanted me to keep the company in line with the founder, at least in terms of how you treat people and integrity and all. And it was just a very, very difficult time trying to find my way back. But what is my purpose in life now? And I mean, it took years, really, to be able to move forward. It was not easy at all. When did you start developing the framework of crucible leadership? The turning point for me was the pastor at my church asked me to give a few-minute talk somehow related to a sermon he was giving. Yeah, I can talk about my story and what I've learned and you know, maybe some faith lessons, if you will. What was amazing to me is that I live in Maryland, near Washington, D.C., and nobody knows much about Australia. Nobody's heard of Fairfax Media. But yet somehow what I had to say really resonated. And for weeks and months after, people would say, well, thank you that your story really helped me. And there's something about talking about adversity, about failure. You know, this is a, a pretty spectacular failure on an, on an enormous scale. What I'd learned uh, about significance, purpose. So at that point, I thought, if I can start writing my story, which I've done and hope to get it published, and then from there, Crucible Leadership came out of that as, you know, how do you bounce back from adversity, whether you, you know, lose a business, get fired, a health challenge, how do you find purpose in life? So that's really where it all began. I wonder, you have these four pillars, refine, design, vision, and reality. How would you apply those four pillars to your own experience? Uh, certainly in terms of refine, 
It was the takeover and the aftermath. It taught me a lot about who I was and who I wasn't. So what was needed is really more of a Rupert Murdoch take charge leader. And that's not me. I'm a reflective advisor. I'm a thoughtful person. I'm not somebody that enjoys managing and that scale. I was just not designed for that. So that was really the first huge lesson about that whole refining moment. That really shifts into design. Once you know how you're wired, the question is, well, how do you live a life of significance? Which to me means fulfilling some higher purpose, helping your fellow men, you know, men and women, making a difference in the world. And that ties to what are the things you're passionate about. For some of us, it may be, maybe you suffered abuse or something and you want to help other people who are, you know, survivors of that. You know, in my case, it's really wanting to help people that have suffered business loss or loss in general and finding purpose. That's really the steps is first understanding how you're wired, which often comes through a crucible experience, a refining moment, then figuring out what's your vision, what's a vision of something you feel like can help people based on how you're wired and potentially what you went through and and then how do you make it reality. And the central goal of all of this crucible leadership work is, as you've written, a life of significance. Can you define that for me? Yeah, I think all human beings inherently want their life to count. There are very few people that think, great, I was a successful CEO and I'm worth hundreds of millions and, you know, hooray. I mean, that's great, nothing wrong with success, but in of itself, it's not very fulfilling, at least I don't think for most people. So a life of significance is just that. It means helping other people in some sense, making a difference in the world as you define it. It's a very personal thing. What does it mean for you personally? Well, for me, I started off with crystal leadership really in my own orbit, thinking about people who bounce back from business failure or being fired or what have you. But it's really broadened out to um, helping anybody that wants to make a difference in the world, who's gone through a refining moment and wants to make a decision saying, I can either wallow in my misery, it may be your own fault or other people's, but people will say, okay, I'm not going to let what I've been through define me. I'm going to use this to make the world a better place. So I want to help those people. I want to give them a roadmap. I want to give them hope. That's really kind of my goal is to help, in a sense, people like me. that have to be me- failed media moguls, but anybody that wants to make a difference in the world that's been through some kind of refining crucible experience. Warwick, in almost everything I've read about you, you've said that you have an aversion to the limelight. That's the way you're wired. So how hard is this kind of openness for you? That's an interesting question. You're right, because when I uh, was in my newspaper days and the takeover, I never gave interviews, which may not have been such the smartest thing in hindsight. But I'm not somebody that likes talking about myself. I'm not somebody who's going to say, oh, look at me. I'm a Harvard MBA. I mean, you know, I, I did my undergraduate at Oxford. Do I ever wear Oxford or Harvard shirts? Like, never. <laughs> because I think boasting is just awful. I, I'm just not into that. You know, I think it, it's, a, it's a process. I'm not trying to be vulnerable just to be vulnerable. It's if I can help people, then it's worth it. So that's my sole motivation is really to help others. And, you know, my faith definitely helps because from my faith perspective, you know, God loves us for who we are, not for what we do. You know, if I'm really believing that, my security is not based on, oh, look at me, look how successful. 
uh, I am or, or what have you. But, it, but it's a process. You know, I remember years ago in the 90s, there were reunions that came up at Harvard Business School and I wouldn't go. I was like too embarrassed, almost ashamed to turn my head up and says, wow, look what you did. Now, nobody's going to react that way, but we think they might. But eventually I thought, you know what, I'm going to go. And amazingly, it wasn't an issue. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but you think that. You know, I'm probably not the only one that suffered adversity you know, amongst uh, fellow HBS alumni. Sometimes you have to forgive yourself, like in my case. How could a Harvard Business School graduate be so stupid? Was I not paying attention in class? Well, I was. I did fine. But there were emotions. You know, wanting to not disappoint my father and all these emotions clouded my judgment. So, you know, we're human. Part of it is forgive yourself. And if you've gone through something where it was somebody else's fault, forgive them, not because they deserve it necessarily, but you deserve it. Forgiveness is, I think, really key to be able to move on from a crucible experience. How long did it take you to forgive yourself? Wow. Well, yeah, I'm, I am somebody who I jokingly say, if there's a problem in the world, I naturally assume it's my fault. So I'm, <laughs> I'm wired for blame and guilt, I'm afraid. So I'm, I'm, I'm a tough case. But years, I mean, most of the 90s, yeah, there were wilderness years. It was tough. It's like, how could I do it? And I've largely moved on from that. It's like, yeah, I'm very reflective, extremely reflective. So I've analyzed it to death. I've done all these what-if scenarios. The problem with what-if scenarios is you never get to play out what would have happened. You're just guessing. You, you don't know. It takes a while, but uh, but can take a while. Did with me. Skydeck is produced by the External Relations Department at Harvard Business School and edited by Craig McDonald. It is available at iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For more information or to find archived episodes, visit alumni.hbs.edu slash skydeck.